0: We did have to do some dancing around insurance to ensure that I could get the in HER2 because they did a liver biopsy and they were worried that it wasn't going to be enough. I got the biopsy results back and it just said HER2 negative. So they sent it in again from my original biopsy from my bone metastases. It did have that I was HER2 low. So they were just going to send in those results. But luckily the liver biopsy did show it was a HER2 low as well. But we were waiting to get approved on treatment based off of those results. It is kind of like a waiting game if you're not immediately HER2 positive. And obviously, it's something that I want to be on because you hear about the great benefits and results people have had and that, you know, it's a new drug on the street that can make a big difference right now. I'm grateful that the HER2 low came through or else I would probably be doing other chemo right now.
1: Welcome to the RMBC Life Podcast from SHARE Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. Welcome to the HER2LOW show, the first NBC 101 of season five. I'm Martha, and you just heard from Natalia Green, co-host and producer of Our NBC Life, talking about an HER2, which she started on shortly after attending ASCO in Chicago. For Natalia and many other people, including Kate Fitzer, the co-host of this episode, learning that a drug used in HER2-positive breast cancer also works for some people diagnosed with hormone receptor positive or triple negative breast cancer, was greeted with hope and definitely some confusion. In breast cancer, we've been classified as either HER2 positive or HER2 negative ever since the appearance of Herceptin. Pathology reports, if we see them, haven't had a HER2 low category. So we have a lot of questions starting with what exactly is HER2 low, and how do we help ensure that our docs have all the information they need to classify us correctly? For that, our NBC life turned to Dr. David Hicks, an academic pathologist at the University of Rochester with 35 years of experience. Dr. Hicks has written extensively about HER2 testing, worked on HER2 testing guidelines, and continues his focus on the evolving HER2 story. Get ready to learn a lot about HER2 pathology, why it matters, why it's notoriously difficult, and how researchers are making it better right now so that no one misses out on a drug that could work for them. Then we turn to oncologist and clinician extraordinaire Yale's Miriam Lustberg for the details on what HER2 low means in the clinical setting The fact is that this new designation has not only upset the HER2 testing apple cart, it raises questions among both patients and oncologists about biopsy and pathology results, treatment sequencing, and research moving forward. In HER2, the first and so far only drug to use HER2 as a target even when it's at low levels, is remarkably effective but it's rapidly gained a reputation among patients as being a difficult drug, with side effects that can be hard to manage. Does it have to be that way? So we asked Dr. Lusberg about how to make an HER2 truly a welcome, real-world treatment choice for the estimated 40 to 50% of breast cancer patients, potentially now classified as HER2 low. Settle in, you're going to learn a lot over the next. For all subtypes, but especially for her too, these days in breast cancer, the pathologist has such an important role. Can you tell us what it's like to be a pathologist?
2: I like to think of the pathologist as the most important doctor that the patient never meets. They bond with their nurses, their surgeons, their oncologists, and yet the pathologist is a name on a report, but. All those providers that they directly interact with make their decisions based on the information provided by the pathologist from the patient's cancer. And the pathologist has a responsibility to make sure that information is as accurate and precise as possible. We do play a role in patient care. We do play a role in patient outcomes, but we're behind the scenes.
3: After hearing the news at ASCO about the HER2 low, we're so excited to have you here as a pathologist because sure. you can give us that information that we're all looking for a little more in-depth than our oncologist can do. Before we dig into the HER2 low, though, we'd like to take a step back and try to understand HER2 breast cancer a little bit.
2: The story on HER2 breast cancer and the discovery of HER2 as the biomarker in breast cancer was historically a very important discovery, and it goes back to 1987 when Dr. Dennis Slayman reported that about 25 to 30 percent of patients with metastatic breast cancer had an alteration in the HER2 gene. The gene was amplified, and that gene amplification led to overexpression of the growth factor receptor at the membrane of the tumor cell and these changes contributed to a more aggressive clinical course of the disease. HER2 is a gene that's normal physiologic function is to control normal growth and development. When that HER2 gene is altered and it's amplified and overexpressed, it makes the disease more aggressive. So the way we know which patients are eligible for targeted treatment is through the testing. And pathologists are the ones responsible for performing the test, either looking for amplification of the gene or overexpression of the protein in the tumor to see if the patient is a candidate suitable for treatment.
3: Before this new development with the HER2 low, we were always designated as HER2 positive or HER2 negative. What exactly does HER2 low mean?
2: We talk about HER2 positive and negative because the traditional HER2 targeted therapies work for patients who were amplified and overexpressed. It did not work for patients who we called negative. But it's important to remember that HER2 is not binary. It's a continuum. Normal breast epithelial cells express HER2, at a low level, about 20,000 copies of the receptor at the tumor cell membrane. And we use immunohistochemistry to detect the protein on the tumor cells. And we divide it into quartiles. Zero is no staining. One plus is faint, weak membrane staining. Two plus is complete membrane staining that's weak, and three plus is strong circumferential membrane staining. There's a huge spectrum of levels of expression between that zero and three-plus. What was shown was that the traditional HER2 target therapy was not effective in those lower levels of expression, because the protein wasn't what was driving the disease. There were other oncogenic drivers. So HER2 low are breast cancers that have lower levels of the protein expression and it cannot be effectively targeted with traditional HER2-targeted therapy. This is a group of breast cancers that in the metastatic setting have not really had any targeted therapeutic potential because they've failed endocrine therapy. To targeted therapy is not an option or the traditional type. And usually the treatment options that are left are chemotherapy. But there's been the development of new drugs called antibody drug conjugates. It's a group of probably 40 to 50 percent of breast cancers now have this new option for a targeted therapy that was not there before.
4: Can you please explain the two tests traditionally used to test for HER2, specifically the immunohistochemistry, or IHC, and the fluorescence-in-situ hybridization test, or FISH?
2: These two methods are complementary. Fluorescence-in-situ hybridization tells you that the gene is amplified. Immunohistochemistry tells you that the protein is overexpressed. Both of them have been shown to be effective at telling us which patients will respond to traditional HER2-targeted therapy. Typically, they start with immunohistochemistry to look at the protein. And then if it's strong circumferential membrane staining throughout the tumor, those cases are HER2-positive. You don't really need the fish. If the staining by immunohistochemistry shows absence of the protein or only very faint, weak staining for the protein in the membranes, the vast majority of those cases are negative and you don't really need the fish. So there's a group in the middle that we call equivocal where there's complete membrane staining that's weak to moderate or non-uniform where we really don't know. And those are the cases that typically get tested by in situ hybridization because if they're amplified, then they're considered positive. If they're not amplified, they're considered negative. Now, some labs have traditionally done primary fish testing and not done the immunohistochemistry. And what HER2-Low has introduced is a problem for those labs. Because when HER2 was positive or negative, if you're amplified, you're a candidate for traditional HER2-targeted therapy. If you're not amplified, you're not a candidate. But the in situ hybridization doesn't capture the information about lower levels of expression. So I've had conversations with some of those labs that are now converting to do the immunohistochemistry upfront with reflex testing by FISH.
3: I was one of those equivocal cases. So they did another test and then that came back as low. So I did know that I've been low one plus for five years, but it didn't mean anything. And then when we're talking in the community, everyone's like, well, how do you know that you're her too low? And it was just by chance, I guess, that (laughs) that happened. Otherwise, maybe back in 2017, that test would not have been done.
2: Yeah. might not have been done and you would have been determined negative or positive by fish. I think that people are right now going back to some of those historic cases and repeating the test to see. But yeah, it didn't mean anything back then, but it does now. It's a new therapeutic category of breast cancer where there's an option.
1: A new pathology testing for her too was complicated, Dr. Hicks. But I'm not sure I really appreciated just how complicated it is until we got on the phone with
2: you. HER2 low has thrown the pathology world into a bit of a conundrum because historically HER2 was positive or negative. We never really paid any attention to these lower levels of expression. So now, in addition to positive and negative, this new treatment option is asking pathologists to, well, amongst those cases that you're calling negative, is it a zero or a one plus or a two plus non-amplified? In other words, is it truly negative or her too low? This is something new. It's something pathologists haven't paid any attention to. It's going to require awareness. It's going to require some additional training. And also, the appropriate test. We're still sorting out which test is the appropriate test to identify HER2 low?
1: So we think about breast cancer as being one of three subtypes, HER2 positive, triple negative, or ER positive. But now there's a lot of discussion about whether HER2 low is a new subtype or if it isn't. What do you think, Dr. Hicks?
2: It's interesting. We have done a retrospective series of consecutive cases looking for the HER2-low cases. And in our ER ER-positive population, it's about 40% of all er positives. In our triple negatives, it's about 15% of triple negatives. So HER2-low really is probably not a distinct biologic type of breast cancer, but the trial showed this targeted therapy against HER2 low was effective in the ER ER-positive breast cancers and the triple negative breast cancers. Is there
1: a role for tumor heterogeneity when you're doing these tests? We've heard a lot about that, but I don't
4: know.
2: Well, that's a fascinating question. And it's interesting. We'd like the world to be black and white and binary, things positive and negative. Biology is much more complex and nuanced than that. Most HER2 positive breast cancers, the alteration is uniform throughout the tumor. And so all the cells have amplification of the gene and all the cells feel overexpression of the protein. There is a subset of breast cancers, however where there's intratumoral heterogeneity. So what that means is that spatially, some of the tumor is positive and some of the tumor is negative. It creates a problem for testing in that the test result will be dependent upon the area of the tumor that you sample. So these sampling issues lead to questions about if the initial test is done on a needle core biopsy and it's negative, is that sufficient to say that the patient's breast cancer is HER2 negative? Are there situations where you may want to pursue additional testing on the excisional sample or possibly on a positive lymph node to make sure that we've excluded HER2-driven disease and we're not missing a HER2 component of the tumor? And those are complicated clinical decisions that are best made probably through consultation between the medical oncologist and the pathologist.
3: Interesting. So, oftentimes, I've heard patients say, Well, you know, I had my metastatic site biopsied and they took several samples. Do you test all of the samples?
2: In a core biopsy, we may get multiple cores, so we select the largest area of tumor to examine for HER2. If we see variability in the grade of the tumor, we would tend to select the highest grade component of the tumor because we know that that's the most likely to show HER2 overexpression.
1: Breaking in here for a moment to explain what Dr. Hicks means by tumor grade. He's not talking about cancer stage. Tumor grade describes how normal or abnormal cancer cells look under a microscope. The more normal the cells look, the less aggressive the cancer. And the more abnormal, the more quickly the cancer will likely grow and spread. Cells that appear more normal looking might be called well differentiated, while more abnormal cells may be called poorly differentiated or undifferentiated. Tumor grades typically go from grade one which is well-differentiated or more normal-looking, to grade 4, which is undifferentiated
2: or more abnormal-looking. In metastatic sites, it's interesting. The HER2 alteration is felt to be a stable change and that HER2-positive breast cancers, when they recur, the recurrences are heard 2 positive That's true in most of the cases, but it's not always true. Sometimes the initial primary will test negative and the patient will recur, and that recurrence will be positive. The explanation for that is not clear, but it's possible that the primary had intratumoral heterogeneity. The initial test was done on a sample from the negative part of the tumor and what recurred was the positive part of the tumor. How that tissue is handled and how it's treated is also an important consideration. We want tissue that's been rapidly fixed and 10% neutral buffered formalin. Biopsies of metastatic disease in bone technically need to undergo decalcification in acid solutions that can alter the test. So there's a number of challenges there, but I think the answer is that in sampling a metastatic disease, you want to pick the best sample to repeat the testing to see if things have changed. Do you
3: find that bone metastatic disease is more difficult to test or is it really just a sampling?
2: It's technically more difficult to test because if you think about bone, it's calcified hard tissue. What we would do in the lab is to treat that tissue in an acid solution that would remove the calcium that would allow us to make sections of the bone. Well, that acid decalcification is going to alter proteins and alter DNA and alter the reliability of the testing. So there are workarounds for that.
1: When you talk about rapid fixation and the issues with the bone biopsies, does that mean that HER2 for testing is somewhat unstable?
2: If you think about a living tissue being removed during surgery, when the blood supply is cut, it undergoes metabolic stress and things start to degrade. That tissue is rapidly transported to the laboratory where it can be examined and sized and placed into a fixative. That fixative stabilizes degenerative changes and maintains the integrity of that tissue for looking at proteins, genes, all sorts of factors. And where that wasn't an issue historically, it's become a very big issue in clinical practice now because there are molecular tests coming online and targeted therapies. So we want to make sure that we have a high-quality specimen where those molecules are preserved so those tests can be measured accurately and the best information provided for the treating physician.
1: I understand if you can't answer this question, but is that a problem? Are there issues with some labs or just the timing and the way the healthcare system is where that doesn't happen?
2: The awareness is growing. I think different institutions have handled this differently. We now have national guidelines from ASCO and CAP on HER2 testing, ERPR testing, and they talk about the total test from the time the tissue is removed until the test is reported. And those first steps include standardizing how we handle the tissue and how we fix the tissue. Different institutions have addressed this differently, but I can't say we've solved it. I think it's probably gonna continue to be an issue going forward. And so one thing that advocacy programs could do is advocate for those early steps to make sure that we have a high-quality specimen for doing the test. The most perfect test in the world is not going to help us if we have a compromised sample. So
4: what are some of the steps required before a new test, such as HER2-Low, becomes standard
2: practice? Before a test can make it into clinical practice, It has to cross several very high bars. It has to be shown to be analytically valid. In other words, it's reproducible. If I did it in my lab, it'd be the same result as if you did it the same test in another lab, and then it has to be shown to be clinically valid. Does the test predict for benefit from a certain type of therapy? And that really requires clinical trials. Once you have that level one evidence that, yes, this is a predictive test and patients who are positive for this test are likely to benefit from this specific therapy, then the test can be implemented in clinical practice. But once that happens, labs need to understand how to perform the test. They need to understand how to interpret the test and how to report it appropriately. There's a lot of unanswered questions that are being actively pursued in a number of laboratories across the country that are going to help us better understand what specimen, what test, and how to interpret the test so that we can help clinicians make determinations. And the way we get at that is through the testing.
1: I'm sure you understand when I say that as somebody with metastatic breast cancer, this sounds like a long time frame.
2: Well, Martha, we have a bit of an advantage because back in the early 2000s, the testing was brand new, and we didn't know what test or how to interpret it. We really had a long ways to make sure that we were handling the samples so that they were appropriate for testing, determine which tests, and how they were best interpreted. The guidelines were initially published in 2007. They've been updated twice since. And what that tells you is that guidelines aren't written in stone. You realize that when you sit down to write evidence-based guidelines, that for many of the things we do, there isn't strong evidence. So we have to do some of these things by expert consensus opinion. But as soon as you lay down a guideline, that gives the opportunity to do studies and to provide feedback so that things can change. I hope that the guidelines will change in the near future to include guidelines around her too low where we'll lay out some of the best practices for identifying her too low and then the research will catch up with that and hopefully we'll have a better understanding of which test, which sample, how to interpret so that we can identify these patients. And another thing to remember, Martha, is that we're using a test to identify HER2 low that was developed to separate HER2 positive from HER2 negative. So is that the most appropriate test to define lower levels of HER2 expression? the clinical trial showed that it was a positive predictor for benefit but are there other patients who benefit that that test might miss we'll learn more about that going forward there is currently a clinical trial destiny Breast06, 6 that is underway that will look at her two negatives and her two ultra low if you can imagine we're going to continue to parse things out and see if those patients benefit My personal belief is that there will be a threshold level below which we won't see benefit. But are there other methods, more quantitative methods that can measure the HER2 protein that might be more appropriate for identifying these patients? The likely answer is yes, but then those new methods have to go through all those steps to be validated for level one evidence. And then that technology has to be broadly available to the clinical community. The current test we have that was shown to be a positive predictor is immunohistochemistry. And although it's likely not perfect, it is broadly available to the clinical community. We just need to raise awareness of this new indication and train pathologists on how to pay attention to this.
3: So, say you're at the point where you're trying to make treatment decisions, and in HER2 could possibly be a treatment. Could you go back to the pathologist and ask to repeat the test and do the test on a prior biopsy, or do you need a brand new biopsy?
2: So if you think about the tissue that's removed during surgery is examined, it's fixed in formalin, then blocks of that tissue are processed, embedded in wax, then that wax is cut to make the slides for the morphology and for the initial testing. Those wax blocks are then saved. Different state laws require that we save those tumor tissue blocks for 10 to 20 years. So, yes, you could go back to that tissue and repeat the test. And one would hope that that tissue was handled and fixed in an appropriate manner so that the quality of that tissue was high. If there weren't archival samples available to test and there was a recurrence of disease, you could sample the recurrence. ESCO recommends that we biopsy recurrent breast cancer to document that it is breast cancer number one and number two to repeat the test. So I think we're going to see a lot of, hey, could you go back to Mrs. Smith's biopsy from five years ago and could we take another look at it, possibly retest it?
1: Have you been seeing
2: that? A little bit. This is still relatively new. I think it's begun to be discussed in our tumor boards. We actually switched our HER2 immunohistochemistry test to what is the current companion diagnostic for HER2, just in anticipation of this coming into approval and being able to provide that information for our clinicians. But if you think about it, our historic archival material was tested with a different HER2 test. It's not the companion diagnostic. So I anticipate that rather than using the result from the record, the historic result, we will repeat the test if requested using the new companion diagnostic to help provide that information for clinicians.
1: Are you able to tell us what that companion diagnostic is called?
2: It's an antibody clone. The clone is 4B5. It's provided by a manufacturer called Ventana Medical Systems. Ventana is part of the Roche family, so Roche Incorporated. And the companion diagnostic is the test that was used in the Destiny Breast 4 trial to qualify patients as eligible for enrollment on the trial. So that test and that trial was shown to be a positive predictor for benefit. So that is probably the best test to use with the information that we have now to identify patients who are suitable candidates.
1: You would do the immunohistochemistry and then the antibody clone test
2: The antibody clone test is the immunohistochemistry, so different companies provide different kits that can be used to test, but the companion diagnostic is the kit that was used in the clinical trial that showed that the test could predict benefit from the drug. On October
4: 4th, Roche announced they received approval for the first companion diagnostic test that Dr. Hicks was just describing. The pathway anti-HER2 new 4B5 rabbit monoclonal primary antibody is a test to identify patients with HER2 low metastatic breast cancer who may benefit from in HER2 as a treatment.
1: Just thinking about the tests and also the things you said before about reliability and the training that pathologists are now needing to better count HER2, are there other things like computer learning
2: and blood tests? There are computer systems that can scan slides and measure patterns of staining and intensity of staining. There are artificial intelligence programs that can go in and try to get more quantitative information from these sections. Those technologies are expensive and not widely available right now. People have developed Fluorescent assays that can measure HER2 protein in a much more quantitative fashion. People are looking at the HER2 gene transcripts, mRNA for HER2, to see if measurement of that can give us a better insight. But I think for right now, the approved tests and then educating the clinical community, both medical oncologists and pathologists, about the importance of this new HER2 low category the most appropriate way to identify it and interpret it, and then what that means in terms of whether it's clinically actionable or not, I think is the next step that we need to be looking at. The professional societies are developing webinars and training programs for pathologists. But I think the advocacy community has a role to raise awareness amongst patients and to push for improvements in these standardizations. As we enter this era of precision medicine, we need to move away from the historic traditional way we've handled specimens. And we need research to tell us the best way to do that. And then we need standardization in our clinical practice to make sure it gets done correctly.
1: Here's Natalia Green once more talking about what in HER2 has been like for her, followed by our interview with Dr. Miriam Lustberg.
0: This is just my third cycle. I just had two days ago, and it's hard. It really is hard. I'm trying to get on a good anti-nausea regimen, but nothing seems to be really working. After this interview, I'm going to the doctors and going to get fluids and more anti-nausea medicine. And I'm trying to get ahead of the game for this weekend to see if that's a little more helpful. You're supposed to take it every three weeks, but my side effects have been bad that they've been giving me an extra week to kind of feel better before I go in. But my team and I are on the same page that we want it to be effective. So I'm, I'm really trying to get ahead of the side effects a little bit. So life's a little more enjoyable, but yeah, it's tough. And then I know like hair thinning was a thing to expect and After my first cycle, like my hair just started falling out like crazy. And so I ended up shaving my head. So just for aesthetic and like self-esteem, that kind of sucked. But I I think on the range of the side effects you can have, at least to me, losing my hair is not so bad.
4: We started our interview by asking Dr. Lusberg what she thought about the presentation of the Destiny Breast 04 at ASCO.
5: There had been a press release uh, of Destiny 04, I think, two or three months prior. And I had actually used that press release to get authorization for NHO2 for a patient of mine. So in advance of the ASCO meeting, I think we knew the data were good. In terms of how incredible they were, I think certainly people hadn't seen all those plots mm-hmm. and progression-free survival and overall survival advantage. So absolutely, that changed how we treat two big subtypes of breast cancer, both hormone receptor-positive breast cancer as well as triple-negative, that had low levels of HER2 expression. So I think really an important milestone. So do you think that this too. is practice-changing? absolutely. It has really expanded our options where outside of a clinical trial, what we had for these two patient populations was essentially our 40, 50-year-old chemotherapy agents. Like old chemotherapy agents is what we had. So this is clearly an advance to what we had before. I do want to share the experience of my patient. She had gotten the drug earlier And by the time that the ASCO presentation was going on, she actually had progressed. She shared with me just how tough it was for her is that everybody is talking about how miraculous this drug is and standing ovations and to be on the other side and just wondering, well, it didn't work for me. That highlights that even as remarkable as those data are, the drugs don't work for everybody. And ultimately, patients will need a drug after that. Has it completely changed high practice? Absolutely, yes. Am I doing more studies with this drug to even focus on patients who are classified as HER2-0? They may not be truly HER2-0 because our current testing is actually very inaccurate. So patients that may, by immunohistochemistry, be told that they're not eligible for trastuzumab uh, drugs, t-can, they may actually have low levels of HER2 signal that are not being picked up. So part of our next research initiatives is to actually find a better way of evaluating the HER2 signal and potentially making this drug available for even more patients. I think a lot of different minds are focusing on this question, which is that maybe even HER2 zero is not really zero. There might be an ultra low HER2 zero has low levels of signal and then maybe a small subset that is truly
1: zero, zero. Do you think that HER2-low should be considered its own subtype?
5: I would say biologists and breast basic scientists are thinking that it's probably not its own subtype. But I would say, Martha, the best way I could describe it is that it's still being actively debated. And until we have a little more data and research, probably most people are not calling it a new subtype just yet, but that we need to act on it clinically for sure. But whether it's its own biological entity, I think people are still on the fence about that.
3: When you're assessing a new patient or even thinking of a treatment change, would you go and do the biopsy again to find out the HER2
5: low status? Let's say the initial metastatic breast cancer biopsy did not show HER2 1 plus or 2 plus I think at the second line setting, most of us would re-biopsy and take a fresh look, particularly if the old biopsy was a bone biopsy, where we know that HER2 determination in bone can be especially tricky. For determining HER2 status, we know there's tumor heterogeneity, so maybe the previous biopsy was at a location that wasn't giving a reliable read. I tend to biopsy more with patients agreeing and wanting to do it. But I feel like tumors change over time and to have a fresh look at what is driving the tumor is important. The additional benefit could be that biopsy specimen could be sent for next generation sequencing so that you could potentially find additional targets that could be intervened on even after your HER2 low directed therapy. So I think it's a good idea depending on how good the first biopsy was, how old the biopsy was, how accessible the metastatic site is for biopsy, can it be safely done, and what patients feel about a biopsy. I think that's important as well.
1: I am somebody whose pathology report was incorrect at the beginning. That was hormone receptor negative and HER2 negative. The sequence of events found that I was actually her too positive. I'm wondering if there's anything a patient could do to feel reassured that their pathology report is correct.
5: It comes back to the overall theme of second opinions and knowing all your options. I think in an ideal world, it would be wonderful, especially when something is being read as negative, because that's closing doors, right? I think to potentially have a second set of eyes. Look at the tissue is most useful and most efficient if it can be combined with a second opinion physician visit. That's the ideal. Now, how it happens and how we had a lot of telehealth access during COVID, and there's been just a lot of restrictions in terms of being able to have telehealth second opinion visits. I don't take that lightly. It takes a lot of resources and access and time and travel for patients to. Be getting these second opinions. But I would say, even if they can't formally get a second opinion pathology read in another institution, having their oncologist really have a conversation with the pathologist. And let me explain what that means. A lot of things are dialogues in medicine, and people may not realize it, which is that there's a lot of behind-the-scene chatter and dialogue. So what has been happening since test 4 results came out is that a lot of us, even if we have a HER2-0 report, we are approaching our pathologist and saying, are you sure? Can you take another look? Can you look at another specimen? So maybe my message to the listeners is not being afraid to raise the question and saying that I've been made aware that HER2 testing can have inconsistencies or be subject to different interpretations. Can we somehow have another look, whether it be with a pathologist in the same institution taking another look, or when resources are available, perhaps an outside pathologist taking another look with or without combination with a second opinion. Just like you experienced that Martha, just because it's typed up in a pathology report does not necessarily make it the absolute truth and not being afraid as a patient to at least question it or raise the question of, can we have another look?
1: Do you think that's especially important now because of the her too low designation?
5: Yes, because of that. And second, because our current testings are not good. We know they're not good. So in some ways, it's even more important because you essentially have an imperfect assay for a drug that's really good. So it really is directly impacting patient care. It would look different in a year or two as some of these other assays come <laughs> into being, but obviously we're talking about the now and how patients can better advocate for themselves.
3: If you had an older biopsy and you're thinking maybe something's not right with this last one, could you ask for the old biopsy to be relooked at? If you did have discordant, biopsy results, and you did have an older biopsy result that did say, oh, this patient did have her too low. Would that be helpful, or would you still need to know the status as of
5: today? You're asking the best question. So I can argue it both ways, and the truth is we don't know the answer. So part of the intrigue of antibody drug conjugate therapy is something called the bystander effect. Which is that, yes, you need the kind of initial HER2 signal to get the drug in, the payload dissociates from the linker, and then that cytotoxic chemo doesn't really need HER2 signal. It diffuses out and actually can have anti-tumor efficacy even in HER2 negative tumor cells. So there's active debate in terms of how much of these incredible responses are actually due to the bystander effect. In which case, I would argue, based on your point, that tumors are so heterogeneous and so if the old biopsy showed her too low and the new one doesn't, you can probably get it through insurance by the old path report. Now, is that the absolute right thing to do? I don't know the answer, but what I can share with you is that there was the DAISY study that was reported in a few meetings. This had several cohorts, but one of the cohorts actually were HER20. And even in the HER20, there were responses being seen. So people are debating, are we seeing those responses in HER2-0 in the DAISY study because of the bystander effect? Or is it that maybe we just weren't classifying the her 2 zeros correctly? So both of those issues need to be sorted out. Based on DAISY, based on understanding that there's tumor heterogeneity, based on knowing that there is that bystander effect. I would personally discuss with my patients use of an antibody HER2 drug conjugate therapy, even if their current biopsy doesn't show it, but there's an old one that does show it. I would do that. Maybe another oncologist wouldn't, but I think the truth is we have some data that shows even the HER2 zeros could benefit. Some
1: patients know their HER2 information, but others don't and feel like, should I have this information like right now? What would you say to those patients?
5: I think they should. I'm just trying to think how they would go about it. All patients have access to their notes now, as long as they have signed up for that type of online patient access. Sometimes physicians have biases. And so you guys set me straight. Could it be stressful for some patients? Like depending on their comfort level with medical terms. But I think for the patient who wants to be as informed as possible, absolutely. They should know what their HER2 status was. Maybe understand some of the limitations of the testing. I can't think of a drawback, for them knowing.
3: In general, we have these conversations in support group and in the community as well. Some patients want to know, some patients don't. Even with scans, some patients want to read it so they can have questions ready. Some patients do not. It's too stressful. So I think it just goes down to people knowing themselves and what they can handle. Yes. Yeah, for sure.
1: What if that information is not available and they're stable?
5: If they are stable and the information is not available, I would try to understand why it's not available, but it could be that it was just such an old biopsy and it just would be a lot of effort to try to even dig that up. I can't speak from the patient perspective, so each of them will feel differently about that. But from a medical perspective, I would say probably it's not as important or actionable at that moment because they're stable. But having said that, I try to Think about, well, how I would feel like if there's a new drug and everybody's talking about it, it Would sort of drive me a little nuts, not knowing my HER2 status. I don't want to speak for patients on just how unsettling that might be. But from a medical actionable standpoint, nothing is going to change at that point.
3: From a patient perspective, (laughs) because I do know my HER2 low status, I know I have another line of treatment, so it allows me to take a deep breath because mm-hmm. it adds something else in that bag that we can take out still. But it is hard when you don't have that information. her too low just seems so complicated. Have you seen reports as to the response rate? Is there a difference between the 1 plus and the 2 plus? Or does it not matter? If you're her too low, then
5: you respond. Everything that I've seen is that there is not much of a difference between 1 plus or 2 plus. The studies were not designed to tell the difference, but Between that, they were not powered specifically to tell the difference, but everything that we've seen is these antibody drug conjugates need such low levels of the target in order to be taken up and get into the cell. So I think for that reason, it probably would not make a difference, but there hasn't been specific study looking at that very question. As we start using it in the real world, a reasonable hypothesis is exactly what you're describing. It makes sense that perhaps those with a higher quantitative signal would have better efficacy. We just don't know the answer yet. But as quantitative tests become more available, they will help us decide that.
3: We wonder, does it change the side effect profile if you have more HER2 mm-hmm. or does it not matter? We don't know.
5: So the most feared toxicity is the lung toxicity known as interstitial lung disease. And based on pulled studies just published in the ESMA Open Access Journal, they have a nice table that lists different risk factors for interstitial lung disease. And the degree of HER2 signal is not one of them. But things that have kind of come up as being risk factors is having some type of lung condition prior, certainly smoking status, being younger. There are lots of theories in terms of why this interstitial lung disease that is happening. And I think one of the theories is unrelated to the HER2 status. It's related to that bystander effect, essentially the cytotoxic agent diffusing out and also hitting normal cells, so hitting the normal cells that are lining our airways. And people don't know exactly what's causing it, but I think your question definitely merits additional study as we start using these agents more, I think we should have more data to answer that. But the best thing to do for interstitial in lung disease is to have a low index of suspicion. So if a patient is noticing a little bit of coughing or changes in her breathing, I think it's really important to report it immediately so that additional testing could be done. And the testing will include a CAT scan of the chest, but a simple test of just measuring the oxygen saturation, just a simple pulse ox on a fingertip has been shown to be really helpful. If the oxygen saturations are under 95%, even though it's still normal, it further raises the index of suspicion that something could be wrong. But generally we evaluate with high resolution CAT scan as well as pulmonary function testing, So when we're noticing changes on a CAT scan, is that the disease or is that interstitial lung disease? And I think that's where it's an imperfect science, but I think what's unfortunately going to happen is if we're seeing some of those changes, we are so worried that if we ignore an interstitial lung disease in its early stages, we can progress and potentially cause a patient's death. The thing to do is to hold the treatment, even if it's working. I feel like these are our gaps. How do we manage this toxicity? How can we get patients back to therapy, the ones who are benefiting? And right now, the guidelines are very conservative. What they're suggesting is if symptoms are completely resolved within 28 days, then you can rechallenge. But if patient is still symptomatic, essentially we're not getting them back on drug. Can you imagine? It's such a dilemma. I think more work needs to be done in terms of can we, in select patients, be a little braver in terms of who we rechallenge? But our goal is, if we can rechallenge them more effectively, we can get certain patients back on a very effective therapy. But for right now, it's those who have complete resolution, essentially, within a month. You know from twitter
1: and from your own patients that there are other side effects associated with in her too. and i'm sorry i'm going to say in her too it's easier <laughs> for me what are you doing to prevent or reduce those side effects
5: we're seeing nausea and gastrointestinal side effects um, more in the real world than maybe were reported in the clinical trials. That's not a surprise. I think that the clinical trial population can be a very select population and they can have a very different experience. So what we're seeing is a lot more nausea. So what I'm using is a lot more anti agents, both for prevention of nausea before it starts, as well as for rescue. I would say that's the biggest change that I've made from Maybe how the clinical trial was conducted for patients who are really struggling with nausea symptoms, maybe scheduling more infusion, hydration visits and things like that. And not being completely afraid, both as a physician and as a person counseling a patient and to your listeners, that dose modifications exist for a reason and dose reductions definitely have a role. Well, the doses that we start with in a clinical trial or that have the FDA label may not be the right dose. They may definitely need modification. So listening to your body and if your body is struggling, absolutely, even if your oncologist is not bringing it up, bringing up the option of the dose modification, dose reduction, I think that's important. Multiple studies have shown, not specifically with antibody drug conjugates, but that we modify the dose, we make the treatments more tolerable. So you think we will get a handle on the side effects and the quality of life that people experience with these drugs as we go on? I think so. I hope so. It will require partnerships with patients. I do think the clinical trials are not telling the whole story about the patient experience. As we use these drugs in the real world, understanding from patients what's impacting their quality of life, what what's bothersome day to day. And then developing team science interventions to really look at how can we do it better? I think we can do it together. I do think if we're not talking to patients about this, we're probably missing a lot of different symptoms that are not either being picked up on clinical trials or we're just not understanding it as physicians. Kind of bringing it back to increased engagement, advocacy, patients being at the table with us as we're looking at these issues. I think that's important do we know how this treatment is going to be sequenced? Because it's changed even as
3: I started my treatment throughout the metastatic timeline. The CDK4-6 came in to play. And then PICRA came in. And now here we have another introduction of a drug. And we wonder, what's the best sequence?
5: Let's take it one by one. So for hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, what the data are showing is that we want to use all our endocrine therapy agents if we can before any of these agents. So, none of these data is challenging CDK46 inhibitor. It's not challenging Alpellosib. It's not challenging the SERDS or Everlimus. So, essentially, think about hormone receptor positive okay. breast cancer. You know your target as long as the cancer is still behaving hormonally responsive. You don't gain anything by jumping the line, and you want to maximize your hormone receptor positive options first. Then at some point, hopefully not for a long time, but at some point, the breast cancer will not care how you're manipulating these estrogen-mediated pathways, and it will need some type of chemotherapy. The first line that we use in hormone receptor-positive metastatic breast cancer outside of a trial, you're going to find people choose differently. Some people start with a taxane or a paclitaxel-type regimen, but it can be really hard from talking to patients to essentially go from oral-based therapies to suddenly, oh, we're starting IV chemo. So what has evolved in a lot of practices, and I think we've seen good results for this, is that people tend to start with an oral chemotherapy agent called cytamine. It's an easier transition and it's showing great efficacy in hormone receptor positive breast cancer. It's after that, that that's where I would position these antibody drug conjugates in that second or third line setting. So with a hormone receptor positive breast cancer, you have your choice of uh, sacituzumab. As second line, once we have the FDA label, based on the ESMO results, they'll be submitting their FDA application, but stachetizumab potentially in the second line, or right this minute, if a patient is for too low, she could get Drexatecan as that second line setting. So I would position it there, triple negative. I think the standard of care first line right now is you want to use your immunotherapy if you can. The earlier use of immunotherapy is important. So if they have the marker for immunotherapy responsiveness known as pdl one positivity, then they should get chemo plus immunotherapy as first line. And then it's in the second line that they could potentially get either of these two antibody drug conjugates, either psychotuzumab or trastuzumab or Easy to see why it's called practice changing when it's laid out that way. Yeah. Yeah, it was helpful for me to just
3: talk (laughs) about that. Yeah. Now that we've opened this door for her too low and we're seeing good response with this designation, is it going to open the door for therapies?
5: I'm not a drug developer, but my non-drug developer prophecy is that a lot of the old chemo's will go away and it will be essentially replaced by the newer way of delivering drugs. So okay. HER2 may not be the target. It could be TROP2, like with a not, But there is a HER3 antibody drug conjugate. I think we're going to find a lot of these targets and a newer way of delivering the cytotoxic therapies.
4: We're happy to report that Natalia is feeling so much better. We want to highlight the fact that supportive care is so very important. While oncologists might not be able to eliminate our side effects, they can help us to reduce them so that we can live our lives better.
1: If you'd like to discuss this episode or any other, please join our new closed Facebook group, Our NBC Life Group. This episode was produced by me, Martha Carlson, along with Kate Fitzer. Original music and sound design by Connor Kensel. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of Our NBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at ourmbclife.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Our NBC Life.